Hey, Larry, wonderful to see you again. Uh, I guess it's been a few years. I think it has. I mean, between pandemics and touring and whatever, I'm sure I'm trying to remember what the last Stickman concert was that I had been to. Yeah, but we we met each other, I guess, like maybe four or five times even in the past 10 years, which uh, was was always nice uh, and really uh, wonderful. You, You have a very positive aura. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> it's not anything I'm working on consciously. I guess it just happens, but thank you. <laughs> hey, Larry, so this, um, this, this format that I'm doing here with this, these podcasts is that it's completely open, you know, to talk about anything. And I'm sort of like really curious about you, I have to say, because also because I don't know that much. Okay, okay, so, <laughs> so uh, you in. yeah, I, I hope you don't mind that. Like, at least to, to get started, I'll I'll ask you a few questions, um, like about you know, like how you got to you know the things that you are doing in your life and with your life, and uh, you know what what the driving forces are, what the history is. I'd, I'd really like to know something about that before we actually get to the music part or the Technical details, let's say. Okay. No, fire away. <laughs> so uh, where, where are you originally from? Um, actually, I, I was born in New Jersey. I'm still in New Jersey. But I've traveled <laughs> all over the world and uh, a lot of time in the UK um, over the, the years, um, mm-hmm. going back mm-hmm. to the, the first family trip in 1969, where... Mm-hmm. I was already enamored of things British being a Beatles fan. And so my focus was always more that. Um, and that includes music uh, as well. My focus was on what was coming out of that and, and Europe itself more than say um, the American bands from the West coast or something. I was more drawn to what would later be called progressive rock in its formative years. Mm-hmm. And, and how did you, how did you, um, get any into any professional work in europe and Um, the uk it was probably more audaciousness um it was a a strange combination of events which was that um going off to college um i nominally was following a professional career career path that was supposed to lead me to becoming a lawyer but Mm -hmm. i was still a music obsessive both playing and I'd been in bands during high school and I continued some degree, although that began to morph into electronic uh, work during my college years. But the main outlet, which was not a, a real curriculum thing, was college radio. And that's mm-hmm. where all the misfits and the musician wannabes and the music obsessives and those who would become music writers and stuff, we kind of um, became part of this extracurricular activity. But when you're living away from home, you know, I was in another state and um, in some ways that becomes your life. It's a a band in itself. And the nice thing about uh, for me was that um, unlike some of my other uh, friends in radio, college radio, who looked at it as an apprenticeship to real broadcast industry, I wasn't that interested in the broadcast industry, but I saw it as an entry into the recording industry because I wanted mm-hmm. to do something, producer, engineer, composer, 
I was trying on all the different hats and I wasn't sure which one would fit. And of course, radio was a great way to be exposed to a lot. You had all the record companies sending promotional materials and the lowest ranking people within the record organizations were the ones who had to service the college radio stations. And Mm -hmm. they were usually fairly recent college graduates themselves, which meant they were about the same age, understood the feeling. And the, the path that had happened was discovery of unusual bands that were not getting a lot of play on commercial radio in America, but that mm-hmm. people like me and my, my close friends who overlapped with musicianship ourselves would go, that's an interesting band. We've got to find out more about them. And most of them were baby bands. These were um, bands that, you know, we thought had great potential to become, we thought that they should be the cultural icons, but they were virtually unknown. So the first one that we were dealing with was yes. And mm-hmm. they were virtual unknown. They had had two albums out and um, in the UK. And I was fortunate enough to have actually picked up the first two when I was there at the end of the sixties. And then things started to evolve for them with the yes album and, um, and then fragile when it came out. But this band was still touring in a station wagon with a box truck, um, trying to get gigs in America. Um, It was very, very early days. So when our little group of college radio people called up Atlantic Records and said, you've got a band on your roster that doesn't seem to be getting anything. We really like them. We'd like to interview them. Mm -hmm. Um, The label just jumped at it and they said, absolutely uh you know where are you we were in pennsylvania well they're playing a college in pennsylvania you know on friday would you like to go we'll make sure that management has passes and things and it was just instantly in there it turned out rick wakeman had been in the band about 16 weeks i think at that point and Mm -hmm. the album had come out and it was getting no traction at all and it was so easy to go go backstage that was the night i met bill bruford and We've known each other ever since. Um, Rick Wakeman, uh, there was uh, another guy with me, Frank Urbaniak. He plays and writes with the Dutch band Fractal Mirror to this day, even though he's had a very mm-hmm. successful professional career in corporate management. Um, mm-hmm. And he and I conducted these interviews. And in it, with Rick Wakeman in particular, I mentioned that I had been designing my own synthesizers because I couldn't afford a mini Moog like he had. I had to build Mm -hmm. my own and I had a electronics background that went back to my earliest days as an electronics hobbyist and then advanced, uh, I guess, advanced amateur. And I told him what I was building. He said, I want one of those. And he had the manager. uh, It was either the tour manager or it was Brian Lane who was managing them. They were, you know, all back in this. uh, It was the concert was in a lecture hall at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And he peeled off cash for me as an advance to build him one of these things. So I built a clone of what I had done for myself. It wasn't all that good. It was interesting. It made some interesting sounds. But I put it together and then delivered it the next summer, which was when they were touring close to the edge. And uh, so that was 1971 into 1972. And that kind of brought me into that world. Uh, you know, I got to see, did a, travel to a bunch of the tour dates, got to see how it all worked. Um, 
what the live performance was like, a little bit of interaction with the, um, with the, the label. Of course, the label was thrilled because we got a lot of um, press and media in our part of Pennsylvania. So it was good all around and, and those friendships have endured. You know, I'm still in touch with Rick. We pop uh, emails back and forth and I go see him when he's doing his grumpy old man piano concerts. And uh, it was a, a great entry into that. Um, and uh, it also, it, it, by the year following, by 1973, um, Rick had said, well, we're, we're doing um, another album. Would you like to come over and give me a hand with a few sounds in the studio? And mm -hmm. it was non-paying gig, basically. It was just come on over. And I was <laughs> thrilled. And so I spent uh, a number of weeks on a daily basis while they were recording Topographic Oceans. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of a fly on the wall. I was supposed to help Rick, but the band was beginning to dissolve. And... Um, so there, there wasn't all that much for me to do on that, but I did get to assist Eddie Offord, who was shorthanded. He didn't have an assistant on that recording. And in a way, that was sort of my production uh, apprenticeship. It was the, the first time I handled 24-track tape, and he was really generous with his tips and techniques on how his, uh, he handled his echoes, how things were patched, what he mm -hmm. did to make Meltron sound great. And it was very different than my encounters with American Studio, which uh, prior to that included some of the big ones like 30th Street, CBS Studio in New York, but they were very rigid and very, there was a big focus uh, legacy of big band and jazz and a little bit mm -hmm. of classical and rock was not treated well at all. So this was, this was really good for me. And it, it got me plugged in. So I'm probably way off track on your question. But no, not, not, not at all. I mean, not, not at all. I think it's, it's fascinating uh, for me. And even though I'm sort of aware of the time, but I was born in 72. So obviously I wasn't there. No. <laughs> and uh, um, so um, what was the, the, the context? Um, like the, which kind, what kind of commercial synthesizers were available in, in 1969 and well, 70, 71. Yeah, there were, there were, well, the, uh, the Moogs had been around because the uh, Bob Moog and Herb Deutsch had developed the core architecture of the, uh, the modular synthesizer in the summer mm -hmm. of 1964. There was, they were both mm -hmm. college professors and they took um, their summer breaks where the, the Deutsch family came up to Ithaca, New York, where uh, Bob Moog was uh, an electrical, electrical engineer and professor at Cornell. Herb was a music mm -hmm. professor at Hofstra. And mm -hmm. um, they had known each other already through theremin, uh, other electronic music technology, but really put their heads together with what Herb as a composer needed from Bob as an engineer. And each of them, Herb was technologically adept and Bob was a musician on you know some kind of an advanced amateur level so they had a really good common language between music and engineering and that company had grown so that by 1969 1970 it was kind of the the king of the hill and then the staff had um uh, even though bob moog didn't want to do it they had created this scaled down version of the um the most important features of the modular system in a box and that became mm -hmm. Minimoog and went through four iterations uh, before the 
Model D, which was the fourth iteration that we know. And that hit the market in 1971. So that was out there already. And that was affordable. Yeah, I was going to ask. I, I was, I was going to ask that. Like, like, how much was something like that? It took it like, from, you know, in the the low tens of thousands of dollars range for the modular systems, which mm -hmm. were mostly being bought by universities and uh, uh, research institutions. Uh, it wasn't all, a, a couple of big rock stars were able to afford it. So George Harrison and the monkeys got one there, uh, but mostly it was uh, either that or people who had good uh, need for something in commercials, uh, commercial work. You know, they were mm -hmm. already doing commercials or they had network connections and they could justify the cost. But the mini Moog itself, I don't remember the original list price, but the street price was somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000, which was still a lot of money when you consider mm -hmm. under today's inflation rate, that still could be like $8,000 or $7,000. But yeah. at least it took it from nearing, you know, half the price of a house down to something that was sort of reasonable <laughs> mm -hmm. and there was competition mm -hmm. alan perlman had um another big modular system with the arp 2500 and that had been scaled mm -hmm. back uh to create the um uh the odyssey which was a mm -hmm. mini boat like a two oscillator instead of a three oscillator but again in that same musician affordable range at least it brought the synthesizers into the high end of guitar you know, finer guitar pricing. So it, mm -hmm. it be, became more feasible. And those began to flood the market. And then, of course, the Japanese manufacturers jumped in. Sure. Um, so, but what is, what is interesting to me is that you said, like, you had already also started building your own synthesizers around that time. Um, so that, and that means that you must have had an interest in, in doing that. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. Um, no. How 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 did that come about? Like you know, for something that is was in, entirely not an established technology or established musical instrument. Like, what was the path to that? It was to actually it, it seemed um, uh, it was a conjunction of two things that I was kind of obsessed with. I I liked music. I was raised in a an environment, parents and grandparents. Nobody was a professional musician, but there were there was some playing lots of recorded music around and mostly classical. My father had his, his big band collections. Um, he was a huge Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman fan. So that when he got the first hi-fi that we got in the 1950s, a big mono block amplifier and a high quality garage turntable, you know, it was the beginning of that um, audiophile world here big floor standing electro voice speaker. And I would just wrap my head around that stuff, no matter what was playing, whether it was um, a traditional classical Beethoven Bach kind of thing or a Gershwin thing or wh whatever was in there. And um, I hadn't, I hadn't really discovered rock and roll, uh, although rock and roll hadn't really reached um, the masses in the same way yet. Cause this is 1955 ish, something like mm -hmm. that. So we there's no Elvis breakthrough yet or anything. Um, mm -hmm. No Buddy Holly, none of the things that I'd later find interesting. But um, I like the audiophile aspect of it. I like the fact that there were glowing tubes and pilot lights that lit up. There was something fascinating me about all of that. Um, 
the music itself sounded a lot better than the little tiny uh like typewriter case sized child's music player that i had um, although that was sort of adequate and that fascinated me um my grandfather was a uh an engineer and technologist and always had to have things first so he had an early tape machine that he had gotten so that they could record me learning to talk and mm -hmm. so that's the the early 50s you know he might have had an earlier one in the late 40s for all i know but this was a, a kind of a big behemoth um quarter inch half track machine pretty high quality because even the the amateur ones were just spun off from the studio ampexes and the things that had been out at that time magnet magnetophones mm -hmm. and there's a picture of me um kind of pretend recording it not even pretend recording engineer i had a ride gain because um you didn't want to overload it and there were two little indicator lights i got pretty good at riding the the input volume control while things were getting recorded and i'm about three or four at the time wow. <laughs> nice color shot of me sitting on the floor with this thing and i i still have that recorder because that's the one i later learned to edit on so uh -huh. i was fascinated with all these things and then the um my grandfather who was the electrical engineer saw that i really didn't care about football or baseball and neither did he and he mm -hmm. basically in the 1910s been the same kind of nerdy kid i think he saw that i was developing into and he had turned it into a career and he mm -hmm. made sure that he gave me the background early circuit design we learned to solder things together you know me as a, a six-year-old um just making basic circuits and it, it just expanded from that we built a, a a radio together i helped him with some of his hi-fi stuff out at his place in the early mono hi-fi he, he was big um on building kits and then modifying them with his own electrical engineering design even that um tape recorder was hacked it had extra line ins and lines out that weren't part of the original design that he had added mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um so i got pretty adept at doing some designs i know he bought me an early transistorized oscillator it was just a basic oscillator to be used um uh, ostensibly it was for morse code practice for ham mm -hmm. radio operators but it was just a little circuit board with a few components on it and the circuit diagram was there and we went over the relaxation oscillator and stuff and i started hacking that so i could change the pitch i could change the tone a little bit and that just got me going it was kind of informal and it was me just going well i don't want just the sine wave i want something else and uh you know the, again i was pretty young on this by the time i got to high school and the beatles had happened i was thoroughly obsessed with music but um even though i played a little guitar played bass in my first band only because i didn't really have a keyboard other than a the family piano um i was looking for what could i build how could i get myself some kind of electronic keyboard instrument that would be interesting and i've set down a number of paths trying to build things for myself most of them never reached completion as an instrument but I mm -hmm. learned a lot along the way. And then when the, the Moog synthesizers came out of the laboratories and electronic music, which had been, uh, well, I mean, you can trace its roots back to the end of the 19th century, but if you look in the post-World War II era, music kind of mm -hmm. right coming out of Europe and what was being done uh, here in the States, uh, there was a lot going on. 
and um, you know, I would grab any article I could find about it, and I'd just try to emulate things. I'd see what I could cobble together out of mail order electronic parts and um, try to apply them into the band context, rock band things. So it was, I was just there early because it interested me. The recording side did yeah. the the composing side interested me. It, it was just a lot that all all kind of gelled around the same time. Yeah, wonderful. I was also talking with uh, Pete and Tony Levin about uh, um, the their school years, let's say, of like learning an instrument, and I guess musical education in schools also was probably very different from how it is nowadays. Um, did you did you ever get any formal training? Yes. Um, so in fact, it started early. Um, my uh, my father played um, trumpet and had been in the marching band with his high school and stayed with that for a while. Had a really interesting looking trumpet because instead of being brass, it was copper. I don't know if it was copper plated, but the color was, you know, a, mm-hmm. a very different color than everybody else's bright yellow gold instruments. Um, mm-hmm. And then my mother had uh, learned violin from her uncle and she had taken formal lessons as a child herself. So there was a collection of um, half size, three quarter size and full size violins that we had sort of inherited in our family. Um, Mm -hmm. My problem was that I had a a pretty bad overbite as a kid. Front teeth were out. I couldn't really get get a sound out of a trumpet. So it was decided I would take violin, which was fine. I liked violin. In fact, there was a, Mm -hmm thing about violin it sort of fascinated me and it frightened me i found the i don't know why but when i was really little i found the f holes and scroll at the top and a few other things kind of frightened me and i'm not sure why (laughs) but i figured one way i could get that under control was if i learned how to play that instrument then it wouldn't scare me so much and Mm -hmm. so the schools offered free lessons any kids that wanted to sign up so i signed up for or my parents i guess signed me up for violin lessons and the school employed a, a roving instructor who also led the school bands and gave the individual lessons or small group lessons. And you, it was great. You got out of class. You didn't want to look at history or math today. Well, you're going to get an hour over in uh, the all purpose room with the instructor. So mm-hmm. I had a couple of years of that. And that was, I mean, they started teaching us to read music right from day one. And of course, mm-hmm. being violin, it was all treble clef. So mm-hmm. bass clef. I never got as good with bass clef, I think, as treble because I was imprinted so young with with what the violin was. And uh, right from the start, we were learning pizzicato. We were learning all kinds of things. And we weren't very, I wasn't very good, but but it was a really good inundation. Then family bought a piano in two years later. And mm-hmm. we actually hired that same school um, employee music teacher who gave private lessons after school and he would come to the house and uh, me and my brothers would get half hour lessons for for years. I stayed with that right through high school. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, not, not a bad introduction to have a violin as an oscillator, let's say, you know, not not at all. (laughs) And I appreciated the sounds. I, I, I did love the sounds. Um, that a good player could do. I was never that good. I was always not using enough rosin or something, but, and um, unlike the Levin brothers, I was terrible at practicing. 
I really liked coming up with things. In fact, this, um, this teacher was very good in that he let me later. I would get one of these kids reduction things in junior high school or something on a, a Brahms piece or something. And I'd just alter it. I'd say, oh, that, that's not good. I'm going to change that bar to be this. I, one, I can play it more easily. And two, I think it sounds better. And he didn't slap me down on that. He kind of encouraged it. He was, he, he found a good balance. And, uh, and I like that, but I was, I just knew I wasn't, wasn't, I didn't want to be a virtuoso player. I wasn't looking for the concert stage. And then once mm -hmm. rock and roll hit, I just wanted to have the skills and facilities to do what I wanted in that world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, like these traditional ways of learning about music and playing an acoustic instrument, sort of like when it comes to understanding or like, yeah, maybe understanding synthesis, you know, it's very, very useful. Like you said, you did pizzicato, you know, like what is the difference? Exactly. Boeing, pizzicato and all of these things. I, I, I still find it fascinating. And I sometimes I still call my, my guitar an oscillator or an input device even sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's a per perfect terminology for that. So it's, um, <laughs> you know, I think it was getting in... Um, inculcated into the vocabulary of sound early on so that um, kids who didn't play instruments didn't quite know how things got created. And mm -hmm. as you know, as we know, we, we can listen to a record, we kind of know what went into the production. We know what ingredients are in the mix and how they were put together. And it takes some of the mystery out of it and maybe some of a, a particular magic of not knowing but it, it substitutes it with a, a whole different skill set and a toolbox that you can use to create new things. So on the whole, I wouldn't change anything for me. Sure. You know, for me, my musical, uh, early musical education included already like being exposed to Karl-Heinz Stockhausen's music because like he was, you know, he was an icon, you know, in the seventies in, in Germany and I lived in the same state. So I did get the, the state radio and like TV um, playing his music or even, t uh, you know, TV programs about him. And so this, I, this early idea that like in, in the, in the fifties, when they used the studio and the tape as a sequencer, like to kind of like, like record individual frequencies and then they, they cut them and paste them back together. And, and for me, that was just so fascinating. And, and, um, and, you know, this is coming like to my next question. So, but for me as a child of the seventies, sort of like the idea of what was going to happen with digital, right. Almost seemed, uh, seemed tangible already when I was a child, somehow like, like the, the imagination was, was going further than what was possible. So for me, when the, like the digital synthesizers came or when MIDI came, like for me, it was a little bit like. Yeah, so what? I mean, yeah, you would expect that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> but from your perspective, uh, you know, like that must have been like a, a very different thing somehow, right? Or, I mean, or, or even or, or the other way around, like maybe for you, you had, I don't know. Yeah, well, well, it was, I was exposed to a lot of things early on. And uh, part of what my, my grandfather in his day, day job, which had been, since right around the end of World War I, was with the United States Navy Department as a civilian 
engineering research uh, and development. He ended up, they had a, um, uh, in, in Brooklyn at the Navy Yard, which was one of the primary sites of the U.S. Navy going back to the Revolutionary War. It actually had been the site of uh, some uh, actually terrible war atrocities by the British against the colonials in the, the end of the 18th century. But um, he was there um, through the whole research and development phase of that. And I used to get invited out to the labs. It was called the material labs. And ostensibly what they were doing was developing um, you know, new weaponry and the, particularly in the cold war, um, what was going on. Um, but a lot of what he was doing as an electrical engineer and he had a, a stronger early career in mechanical engineering, but a lot of it was communications and what was going on with the nuclear Navy as it was getting built. A lot of that involved subcontractors, which included bell laboratories. So if you, uh, you or your listeners aren't familiar, bell telephone, was the dominant American telecommunications company that had tied the country together um, with the transcontinental telephone in 1915. That had been a process of consolidating the smaller independent telephone companies from the 18, actually the end of the 1870s onward until um, this incredible web of electric telephone work had been done. Bell Telephone uh, in uh, over the years had created a laboratory system called Bell Telephone Laboratories or Bell Labs for short. And Bell was kind of the um, really the leading edge so that even the military industrial complex would come to Bell to find out what was what were the, the best technologies. Now Bell um, and this the, the main Bell Laboratories building is within sight of where I live right now. And mm -hmm. That was coincidence, but it meant that when I was growing up, because I grew up not too far from here, and after all my sojourns ended up coming back about 40 years ago, um, mm -hmm. was uh, there were north of 30,000 employees, researchers, PhDs, people doing solid state physics and what would become laser technology and all kinds of stuff. So everybody knew somebody who worked at the labs. My girlfriend in high school's father was an engineer at Bell Labs. So uh, that, you know, there, so many of my friends had connections, not my family because they were attorneys, but through my grandfather, there was a connection because he would come out on Navy business to the laboratory headquarters. Um, the one thing that, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but we would uh, be exposed to this even in our public schools, was that some of the public face of the research would spin off out of the labs. So by the early 60s, I remember one of the kids' fathers had come in to talk to the kids about what was going on. And he brought a recording of a computer singing Bicycle Built for Two. And it <laughs> was the project that first created vocalizations by computer as a pure research. Mm -hmm. Found its way into 2001, A Space Odyssey, as mm -hmm. a uh, when Hal's being uh, decommissioned and he reverts to his babyhood and that recording is there. Well, this was around us, but it was, I thought everybody had exposure to that, but it wasn't what had, uh, what I've discovered in, in more, well, not recent years, but in back in the seventies and the early eighties was that PCM digital was a major project going on during world war II for encryption purposes. 
at Bell Labs, mm-hmm. and they had they had not invented PCM. That had actually been ITT in Belgium before the war, but they licensed it all and they brought over some of the scientists, and they worked very closely. Um, and they had teams of people, which actually included people like Alan Turing, who was sent over from the UK and spent time in this part of New Jersey during the war. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, brought uh, PCM digital audio to a fairly high art by the late 1940s. It was uh, well understood. They began to apply it to long distance telephone work. Um, the underpinnings for what would become the cell network were already on paper by the um, by the end of the 1940s had been laid out. Uh, Claude Shannon, who was one of the brilliant minds there, had basically laid out the architecture of an internet-like structure, which they envisioned would be an enhancement of the the uh, telephone network. Oh, I should also point out the Bell Telephone Network was, unlike uh, many of the European and Asian countries, was a private company. It was not a government-run agency, mm-hmm. but it was a monopoly, but a regulated monopoly. So that this private company that did have shareholders um, could invent their own future. They weren't subject to that kind of government regulation, but they did have to stay out of certain areas of design and development. Um, They could design, I shouldn't put it that way. They could design and develop, but they couldn't commercialize. So for instance, Mm -hmm. the transistor was developed at Bell Labs. The uh, William Shockley, the principal uh, developer on that project, although his team did more than uh, some more significant work than he did. He lived 10 houses away from where I live now on the same street. And, uh, you know, all around here were people that had been involved in that, but they developed the transistor in order to make the telephone network more efficient. But when it was done, the U S government said, you can't sell that on the open market. You can only grant licenses to other companies to do it. And their first two licensees were um, Texas Instruments, who went and ran with it, and Sony, who also saw the utility. And a lot of other companies didn't. But it, it, it just meant that it fostered a lot of growth. But in the meantime, Bell Labs stayed with digital and PCM. And there were a lot of fortuitous accidents. So people like um, uh, Max Matthews, who was working in computers, and with digital audio in the 1950s, um, got permission to start up what was basically an ele- a digital electronic music lab within this purely research and development facility. And they were very, very generous within the phone company for that, in that they, um, they were throwing billions of dollars at Blue Sky Research because they were making money, because they were allowed to make money, but they couldn't commercialize out. They couldn't start building television sets or refrigerators. They were prohibited under their agreement with the government to have this regulated monopoly. So they did a lot of pure research that led to all kinds of cool stuff. And um, so it, that means that that like like the technology, like if I'm understanding correctly, like the research was about 30 years happening about 30 years before there was commercial product yes. um, or a cons- consumer products, let's say that that's used a, that a, technology. Exactly. It's a pretty good timeline on it because if you, you look at some of the papers on the um, encryption projects during world war two, where the, the Pentagon and um, Whitehall and Australia and the whole ANZUS, uh, the whole allies 
theaters of war were tied together with a digital network. And you look back at that and you go, kidding you know it's all vacuum tubes and, um it's basically encrypted shortwave radio because there were no satellites or anything but uh mm -hmm. it was it was just fairly amazing some of it went on cable um but the 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 math behind it the theoretical underpinnings of you know how do you in, encode and decode an analog world transmit it control it network it um the router and uh, routers that were needed all of that it's it's all falling into place already by the end of the 1940s and then it just kept getting refined and these spin-offs like max matthews and the speech and synthesis people um in in theory they're looking oh can we replace telephone operators you know can we create a synthesized voice and then how do we create an interpretive one that can understand spoken voice to the computer and mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. much was being done on that. And you know, as byproducts, it would be um, operating systems like Unix, which grew out. Uh, that was an in-house Bell Labs project, or they had languages A, B, and then C, and then C caught on, and then uh, C double plus, which became kind of a, an underpinning of a lot of our modern stuff. The the developer of that um, um, I'm blanking on his name, but he lived about four houses away from me. I used to go over to his house. I was so impressed that even by like 1985, he had a Macintosh, not a Microsoft-based system at his home. So just, just uh, you know, did you ever get into programming, like computers? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So what had happened? Well, first I had taken that in college. So I had had Fortran and COBOL and then... Um, okay because I was an arts student and we, there were a handful of us and we were clogging up the throughput work for the engineering students, even though I took some engineering, but I wasn't a, an engineering major. My major was in history. Um, the college bought us a Hewlett Packard mini computer system that ran basic, which was pretty basic, but um, it, it was a lot, uh, it was interactive. We didn't have screens, but we had teletypes with paper. But unlike Fortran, where you um, do your punch cards, bring your job to the computer center, hope it would turn around within 48 hours, and you had a misplaced comma and the whole job bombed out, and you'd have to start over again. With BASIC, in some ways less capable, but in other ways not so much, you knew when you made a mistake originally, and immediately, because you get an error statement right back to your, to your terminal. And I got pretty good at being able to take Fortran style programming and convert it into basic programs for that mini computer. And my roommate, who was an electrical engineer and didn't have access to this interactive system, I would run some of his stuff and he could get a jump on his, uh, his other schoolmates by not having to wait for the IBM system to turn around. So, um, yeah, I started with that, and then I got out of college, and actually, that my nights in the computer center around 1973, that was the beginning of staying there all night and watching the sun come up, because I was just so in the zone of programming, and mm -hmm. um, I really felt a loss when I left school, because I, I didn't have access to that anymore. I was you know, Now I was out in the world trying to make headway in the music business, but fortunately, microprocessors came along about just a little under two years later, the first so, the, so when you did your first uh, basic programming, was that what was the did you 
was it a keyboard already or was that still punch cards no it wasn't no. punch cards it was the um well do you mean the language basic or do you the mean language the language the language the language basic was you know that was um it was a teletype it was one of these uh things that looks like a, a typewriter keyboard um mm -hmm. and then it's got a big scroll of newsprint paper that comes up above like where the screen would be on on this computer mm -hmm. Um, and it would, you know, you type in and you see your, your lines and you, uh, maybe, you know, enter your, your programming or your programming module, whatever you wanted to test, it would be separate line items, very much like, you know, you see basic and then you, mm -hmm. you know, hit enter and whatever the go was or whatever that tells it to execute. And then if there was an error, the error statement would, you'd hear the chattering and it would mm -hmm. print on the paper. In newsprint very much like a news teletype they were almost the same technology um mm -hmm. you you'd get a return from the computer sometimes it was a cryptic code you'd have to look up in a manual or sometimes it was something obvious or you got to know the, some of those cryptic codes because the mm -hmm. same mistakes would come back and you go back and you correct um or you get unpredictable results but people were doing great things with graphic printouts using x's and dashes and things to make pictures of dinosaurs or pinups or print calendars <laughs> there was a lot going on and of course i i knew there was going to be a, com a computer to music connection it was mm -hmm. already there on some of the direct digital things they were being done at universities uh, people out at uh, uh Leger and hiller at iit and at ircam in paris they were doing that there was a lot of it and at bell labs there was but i didn't have any entry until 1975 when mm -hmm. bob moog who by that time I, I had gotten to know after recording my first albums. Um, and I'd been, since I was such a, by that time I had little money, I had bought Moog products. And so I was kind of an endorsee and they didn't have a lot of musicians who could talk engineering with them. So it was, you know, it was a, a very good relationship. There was uh, me, there was uh, before me, Wendy Carlos. Uh, there were a handful of people who had the, both the science engineering background and the musical side. Bob Moog was invited to a project that was starting in Max Matthews department at Bell Labs mm -hmm. here in New Jersey. And he was up in upstate New York near Buffalo. And this would require going into the labs probably later, later in the evening, a couple of nights a week over a period of months, if not longer. And he, he couldn't commute like that. He had a you know company that, he was struggling to retain control of, and they had other product lines going. And he, you know, for whatever reason, um, I didn't know that I impressed him, but he recommended me because I was nearby and I could talk the language. And so I was invited in, and there were a handful of us. Uh, Lori Spiegel, who was deeply into it already, and I got to know Lori. Um, I met her there, and we've been friends to this day couple of other people don slepian i don't know if you're familiar with his name he's uh yeah. american composer his dad had been a groundbreaking uh theoretical i think it was theoretical physics at bell labs and he was the the next generation although not the academic scientist that his father was but a really good musician so he was on mm -hmm. the project roger powell who was uh somebody i already knew um who was from todd band, and he had been a, a demonstrator for both Mogan was how I met him when he was uh, working in the music industry and uh, he was doing some things. So there was a, a 
nice group of creative people. And we, we were the ones fooling around with the equipment after the grownups went home. And then a couple of the um, full-time employee, PhD level physicists and various projects. Lori was working on several different projects, um, including an older one called Groove, which was one of Max Matthews' pet projects. And that was one where they had built a fairly large Moog modular system, but every module was tied into digital to analog converters that tied into the, the mainframe computer. And then the one I was working on was a purely digital one. It was my first exposure to digital recording and playback and digital synthesis. It was a fairly advanced, uh, again, based on mostly on vocal synthesis. But if you took out, if you stripped out some of the complicated parts for the vocals, it was a really cool digital synthesizer. And, uh, <laughs> and vocals had not interested me that much. I'd always left that to the singer and the band or whatever. I, I wanted instrumental music. I never really saw Stravinsky trying to wrote, write vocals. So it didn't interest me as, as much. And yeah, but like, uh, like on the technological side, it's a good, good driver to get something done if you're trying to recreate something that humans do, yes. right? The voice. It is. Exactly. It was very complicated. The guy who was heading the project, um, that phase of it, he was trying to write an opera for computer and mm -hmm. it was an incredible challenge. And I, I was just blown away at what he was accomplishing, but it wasn't what mm -hmm. my creative heart wanted to accomplish, but mm -hmm. it was such good exposure. It was the first hard disk system I had seen. It was a seven megabit, uh, megabyte, uh, multi-platter hard drive. It was like, you know, the platters are like this big The thing was the size of a small refrigerator. You weren't allowed in the room with, you know, because people smoked everywhere then. You weren't allowed to bring your cigarettes into the room or, mm -hmm. or anything. It was, you know, um, digital etiquette that I was learning. That When I first was attached to some of the projects, they weren't even able to do real-time sampling yet. Everything went to a pair of, I think they were ATR-440 Ampexes. You'd record them and then they could play back at one quarter speed into the converters to get digitized and mm -hmm. um, that changed of course later but um and it just continued on there was another project then that started up a few years later with um under a guy named hal alice and that was another digital one that was an additive synthesis engine that was designed at the labs but it used a couple of um uh oh. mini computer systems sort of stacked to to provide the uh what was not part of the purpose-built hardware built at Bell Labs. Mm -hmm. um, and it could run other software. So there was some stuff coming in from Stanford, from John Chowney. And that turned out to be some very early FM synthesis, much more complex than what was later licensed to Yamaha to become the DX7 and all its things. Mm -hmm. But I, I mm -hmm. used some of that on one of my albums in 1979. It was on Bell Labs hardware Stanford software. And I wasn't supposed to take it out of, of the comp out of the company facilities, but I snuck some out anyway and flew it in on the 24 track. So Larry, you, you really sort of like were almost say in an ideal position because you were like educating yourself, let's say within like all the possible or like from all the possible perspectives that yes. we could, one could have on music or on making music. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was listening to some of your music from the uh, late 70s and early 80s, 
to prepare myself talking to you and sort of like what I, and I hope this is a, this is a compliment, but it really sounds like the sound, if you know what I mean, like the sound that everybody sort of like now refers to as that's how it's supposed to sound. I you know, like, no, thank, thank you. I, I didn't think it was anything that special. And I would heard similar kinds of comments, uh, mm. even when I was doing the first album and working on, on the mix. Um, and to me, it was, um, it was just obvious. I'd listen to other recordings and go, well, no, it's, it's it, you know, they're, they're missing the dimensionality. They're missing this, they're missing, the, um, you know, they're, they're too timid in the frequency ranges or, or whatever this, it has to have impact. And so I was just doing what I wanted to hear and was not hearing on many other recordings. It wasn't uh, anything more than that. It was, we all had the same equipment. We all had the same tape machines and I had much smaller Moog rig than a lot of the other, you know, um, my, some of my contemporaries, because I didn't feel compelled to just, you know, I, I remember going to some trade shows. I was like, well, I've got 128 oscillators. What are you doing with them? Because three <laughs> sounds pretty good. You know, we're, we're still all playing mono and multi-tracking. Um, mm -hmm. At four, mm -hmm. you can add a little more. At five, you're starting to get to the point where you're not really adding much. By six, really diminishing returns. You know, it's not yeah. not yeah. getting any bigger. It's not getting any better. It's just getting more out of tune. And yeah. so I would rather stay with a, a smaller custom rig that I really knew inside out. At the same time, I was getting this tantalizing view of the future of what was going on at Bell. And it, I couldn't bring it home for the most part it was you know i knew what was going to happen and i was trying to predict is you know will by the time i'm 70 maybe we'll have something like this in our homes i hope and and then it happened in like five years it was so quick mm -hmm. what i hadn't predicted was the microprocessor revolution because i'd gotten an early microprocessor and i had selected one uh that was construct uh uh, you know, there were these early chip sets that would come out and um, you really had to program everything essentially in machine language. There, you, there were higher order. You could get a, um, a Microsoft, their first product, which was a basic compiler and run it on an Altair. But if you really wanted to do anything efficient and what I was trying to do with music and digital audio every clock cycle counted. And so you couldn't use a higher end uh, interpreter or compiler or anything. You needed to know what every cycle was doing and, and make your code efficient. So mm -hmm. the thing, the way to do that was pick a microprocessor, get to know its instruction set, which would be anywhere from 60 to 100 instructions. You'd have a card that told you how many clock cycles it took to do this function. And you could start creating things so you could have um for digital audio steady audio throughput that wouldn't crack and mm -hmm. for music even with uh it wasn't midi yet i was doing um control voltage and triggers to the moog but you didn't want any jitter in the time because the musician i by that time we knew that like a drummer a jazz drummer um uh if you're pushing a little bit or pulling a little bit it's in on the order of tenths of a microsecond of a millisecond that's detectable mm -hmm. by the audience 
And mm -hmm. so, you know, we're working in microsecond increments within the computer, but you want to make sure that output stay there. So if you're going to have a little push, Roger Lynn got very good at understanding how to bake that into the code for the processor running the Lynn drums. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I was really cognizant of that. So I picked a, a company that was in Pennsylvania um, called MOS Technologies, and they had a, a microprocessor called the 6502. Um, which was their flagship. And the thing I liked about it was that the Intel processors at the time, um, there's a function called an interrupt, which means that the computer says, hey, microprocessor, whatever you're doing, drop it because I need this managed right now. And mm -hmm. if that happens while a music or a digital audio function is happening, um, it's going to screw everything up because all of your carefully crafted code to tell the central processor what to do and which register to hit and when to hit it is thrown out the window because something just overrode you. And the 6500, the, the MOS technology stuff, let you override that and go the other way. So if you're doing a spreadsheet or a word processor, it doesn't matter. If you're doing something in real-time digital processing, it means the world. So I picked that one because they were they were nearby. I could actually uh, within two hours drive to their factory. And um, the others were on the West Coast, whether it was up in Seattle or in Silicon Valley. So I thought it would be nice to have something a little closer to home. And I just learned that instruction set really well. Turned out I wasn't the only one because um, Steve Wozniak had picked the exact same one to bake into the Apple One and then the Apple Two. So mm -hmm. I was way ahead of the game because I had the machine language uh, together on that. And um, I was trying to apply some of the things I was observing on the big mainframe at Bell Labs and apply them into creating these little, were basically early sequencers and little early digital audio things, but they were still not up to the industrial strength of taking them out on tour at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I gradually brought that together um, yes. and, and made it work. It's, it's, it's really funny because like what you're describing and like your interests and like getting the the, the clock to be solid, right? Uh, on the on the processing side, I think I think I hear that in your music of that time. There's the, there's there's like the, the tightness to it uh, that is sort of like very modern. I find it very contemporary sounding. This tightness mm -hmm. and 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 really, um, it was fascinating to me because like when I always, you know, now thinking also like what did I mean? by saying that it's it's the sound like if you if you now buy a plugin and you you know you listen to the sounds you can find sounds that sound like your sounds back then that's what i mean like the people refer to like the preset is like something that larry and others obviously did at the time and um and this this like it's a mystery to me how you guys like when you listen to like something like very popular here is like Jean-Michel Jarre, for example, like, uh, I don't know which year that, you know, that his first album came out 76, 78 or something like that. It was a little bit after my, my first one. I remember that, um, Tangerine Dream was out a little before me and yes. Oxygen, I think was a little after. Yes. And, 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 but the, the, if, uh, if I listen to that music now, but even back then it sounded like still sounded acoustic. Mm -hmm. because of the performance factor and like only only later i discovered like uh tonto's expanding headband or stuff like that where you could clearly hear people were playing 
you know, like, like playing and, and the sequencing was not such a big part of it. Maybe there was one element that was sequenced, like in Tangerine Dream or in Klaus Schulz's music and everything else was planned, played. But then, then, at, and, and I mean, you will, you will be, uh, you know, more qualified to explain to me what happened, sort of like where things were getting more sequenced. Was that like, that, like late 70s, where there were, you know what I mean? Like where there was. Well, there were more. I mean, the, um, the early, the Moog 9, I guess 960, 61 series. I'm, I'm sometimes don't remember all their model numbers, but the, you know, the famous little white lights blipping along on the Moog modular, mm-hmm. which um, could be cascaded, I guess, to be 24 note sequences. But they're, they're very rigid and they're running off the clock. And, um, and they were actually the first, uh, the first digital chips in any Moog products were in, in those. They were mm-hmm. early um, digital logic chips in, in the clocking and, and sequencing mechanism. But um, they tended to be fairly rigid and it was very difficult to build something in. I never really used that much at all. I didn't, I've, I never had the Moog one. I had an Oberheim, smaller uh, clones of those that thought were interesting. But um, Oberheim also made a digital sequencer, which was very early on. It was so early that it didn't even have RAM chips. It had a um, huge circuit board of shift registers and an earlier way of doing computer memory, which meant you had to keep um, clocking through uh, logic. It, it, anyway, it's, it, it gets, um, but it, but it worked in a more modern way in that um, you would, you could play in a part including phrasing, including, um, uh, and there was even a way to set the sensitivity of that. So you could actually essentially quantize it if you wanted to with one setting, or you could have it find every last little nuance and mistake and leave it in, and then loop the sequence. And it was all stored in electronic memory and then played back and looped. And it also had transposition availabilities built in and the very important thing in those days was that you could adjust the clock of course but the start button served as a hard reset button on each sequence so if you were Mm -hmm. playing to a band track that had already been recorded with a drummer no click track and it's kind of moving in time but it's pretty good you know the drummer's good but he's not a machine so there's going to be a little drift and that means that your 13-note sequence or whatever you're doing, um, you're going to get to that last note, and you got to restart it at some point. You could mm-hmm. you could tap along on the bar lines, and you could make your sequence re reclock to the band. And I mean, I, I would do that a lot on sessions and things, and you'd have to keep punching in. You might get 30 seconds or 40 seconds in, and then you'd blow it. And mm-hmm. you have to hit the record button the same time you're hitting the reset button, but you could pick it up and make it sound fairly acceptable. So there were a lot of workarounds and kludges to get things going on that. But I think it was a matter of figuring out where you wanted to be. Was this supposed to be a Robotron, you know, descendant of Metropolis, or was it supposed to be something that had some breath in it? And <laughs> that was a, a production value judgment, uh, an arrangement judgment. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of sessions that I was doing for R&B things where they really didn't understand the electronics very well. They just wanted it, a good outcome. That was kind of tossed in my lap. It was like, just just make it sound good. So I would do what I thought oh. was the right thing. 
let's let's talk a little bit more about what happened after your first um let's call it internship with Eddie Eddie Offord like so what 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 came after that like how well, did your relationship with uh with Peter Gabriel happened for example well um Peter started early in in a sense because that little sequence of events that led to working with yes um there were a number of of baby bands that we had repeated that with nobody else became as successful as yes i mean they they literally went from you know zero to 100 kilometers an hour within months and mm -hmm. it, it was you know those of us that were there said see we knew this <laughs> we knew mm -hmm. they were going to do that um so the next one that came along, or I shouldn't say the next one, there were a couple of others. None of them really turned into much of anything, although a few people I'm still uh, in touch with. But Genesis, they, mm -hmm. uh, um, the Trespass album, and then the, um, I guess, Nursery Crime. And I was going, well, they got a pretty cool sound in Mellotron. I wonder who these guys are. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Our same little group, uh, Genesis, had a, a, an entirely different set of um, uh, record label issues. Yes, didn't. They were with a major label, and Ahmed Erdogan put the resources of Atlantic Records behind them, and they went. Um, Genesis was a little different because um, Tony Stratton-Smith, who had them on the Charisma label, didn't have a big distribution deal in America. Um, you know, where the way that yes was already structured within WEA. So Charisma had done uh, licensing deals in other territories, and they had picked a label called Buddha Records here in the United States, which was an interestingly weird little label. They had had some success with um, some of their affiliate labels with some bubblegum things like the Archies and uh 1910 fruit gum company but these were like teeny bop things nothing like genesis nothing like the cer cerebral thinking that was going into that and um got to meet genesis because they were already doing dates in america very very few but um we did the same radio thing called up buddha and said you got a band on your label and in their case it wasn't even like atlantic which said oh yeah yes we're trying to make them into the next king crimson you know it was more mm -hmm. um we think we can take them you know to uh, out of the uk to the us this one was more like we do we have this band <laughs> and it was like well if you want to if you want to go to a show we'll talk to their manager and we'll, we'll get in so they um They'd done a few dates. They'd, they'd actually have one very significant launch date at New York City at Philharmonic Hall. That's now Dave and Geffen Philharmonic Center at Lincoln Center. But it was a radio-sponsored concert for WNEW-FM, which was the predominant uh, rock station in New York at the time. And they had brought them in for a Christmas concert. So it wasn't a commercial venture. And they sold the place out because they really did have... Genesis had a following, but it was still sort of an underground following. They came back about three months later and they were playing, again, it was a small hall. So they were playing at Princeton University in a very 400 seats, 500 seats. Um, and that's what the record company arranged for our little radio troupe to come in from an hour away in Pennsylvania and see them and then meet with the band. So my thought was, oh, I'm going to meet Tony Banks, and maybe he wants uh, another copy of my 
my dumb synthesizer. And he wasn't interested at all. But I met Peter that night. I met Jill Gabriel, who was there. A lot of the wives were touring with him. And Joe was amazing. Um, so it was a really nice time to have met them. It gets interesting in that there was a company. It, it actually still exists in a different form now called Gem Records. Gem was an import company. They specialized in scouting trips to England and onto the continent finding records that were not either released or were not properly being marketed in the U.S., of which Genesis was one of those. So they would import cartons, crates of finished Charisma LPs pressed in England to the U.S., and they had their own network of record stores with import sections, and they were selling more Genesis records than the Buddha label that didn't know that they even had Genesis on the label. <laughs> and so that had to change. But the interesting thing was, of course, there was a wonderful relationship established between uh, Gem Records, Charisma, then Hit and Run Management, and all the people that became part of the Genesis group and then later managed um, you know, Peter and Phil Collins. And it, it really grew into something quite big. Um, where I fit into this story was that uh, both Rick Wakeman and John Anderson heard some demos I had brought with me in the summer of 73. And mm -hmm. both um, they went to um, Rick's company, A&M, and to at WEA in London. They both loved the demos. But WEA said, we'll actually put you on a development deal. It wasn't just me. It was me and... My friend, who's uh, Frank, who was also on the radio, he was the drummer in the band. And we, we had put together a kind of proto-prog band ourselves, heavily focused on electronic music uh, underpinning, mm -hmm. but more conventional band. And uh, we had a Warner's development deal. And we went in the studio and cut almost an album's worth of stuff. And then um, it we didn't get picked up. It was also the time of the first oil crisis and a big recession and a lot of turmoil. So I retrenched. Um, Warners took a pass on it, but Gem Records, which was just getting started and starting to have their own labels, um, one of the people I knew through college radio from another station had graduated college or he finished college. I don't think he even graduated. He went to work for Gem Records. And mm -hmm. he and I were in touch about, well, things aren't going well with the band because Warners took a pass. and They told us we can chop our demo anywhere. And they said, well, I'll introduce you to the guys at Gem. So I went down there and they were based in New Jersey, which is even more convenient, even though they had ended up with offices in LA and London and, you know, they turned into a big company. Um, they were interested in the band. So they were thinking about picking it up, but then internal fractures in the band happened. People decided they couldn't afford to be poverty stricken anymore. Kind of just left me. And within Literally months. I think Warner's passed in December of 73 by the summer of 74. It was just me, all electronic production version of what was going to become Synergy. I even had the name already picked out. And mm -hmm. uh, the president of Gem Records and I sat down at a diner and we just kind of worked out the numbers of how many records would have to be sold and all that. And I got signed and I was on my way. Uh, using the techniques I had learned from Eddie Offord, went back to the same studio, 
where we had done the, the band demos that Warner Brothers had put us in uh, here in the New York area. Um, the die was sort of cast, but the Genesis thing was already blossoming because they had The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway through Gem. They were moving incredible quantities of that record. And mm-hmm. um, so at that point, um, it was uh, Marty Scott, who was the founder of Gem Records, and he's still the principal to this day. He still runs that label. Um, he said, yeah, come with me. I'm, I'm meeting with Gail Colson from Charisma. I'm meeting with Strat. I'm meeting with, uh, we're going to go see Genesis. Uh, you want to come? We'll go say hi backstage. So I was part of all that. In the meantime, I'm, I'm starting to record the albums and Genesis is beginning to change. You know, um, Peter's getting ready to leave. Didn't know it at mm-hmm. the time, but mm-hmm. I kind of got insinuated in as part of the extension of the American distributor. And so I got to know Peter. I got to know all of them around that same period. And when Peter finally did leave and he called up and said, you know, and by then I had two of my albums out back in those days, you could chart on billboard fairly high. You know, I got not number one or anything, but I was in the you know top 50, I think in some markets. And uh, he said, oh, I like what you do. Would you bring some of that to me for my, when I do my solo album? And it was incredible. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that was all within about two years. Do, do you do you think of yourself as being like a pretty proactive guy, or did these things really just happen because you were so passionate and you were always hanging around with the right people? I think it was strategic and and luck. Um, some of it, no, I'm not proactive. In fact, I'm constantly accused. My wife tells me all the time I don't promote myself enough. And mm. I tend to not just try to crank out quantities of material, um, mm-hmm. try to make it uh, quality and just, you know, have a, a smaller catalog that that's, um, you know, that's well-respected rather than people trying to s- separate wheat from chaff. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that things like, you know, I knew that the um, uh, gem distribution was really good. I could see the more I got, an insight into how the business worked. I structured the publishing for myself the way I wanted it to be, you know, the, the behind the scenes part of it. And also knowing um, even things like the studio that I'd seen bands run the up or run their royalty accounts into the ground by spending too much time in the studio. So as soon as I could get a good quality studio recorder at home, I knew that would pay back. So I, I bought an MCI fairly you know, I think um, 1977, almost, you know, very early in my career. So all of a sudden I was starting to cut back on expenses and make these things, uh, the recordings profitable almost from day one. And of course, not having a band and not going on tour helped. But then, um, you know, I, I saw these more strategic things rather than going out and doing the the huckster thing really didn't appeal to me at all. <laughs> and and so... That's great. So with, um, with Peter, was that the first time that you were actually touring? No, I had toured. Um, Gem Records had another band called Nectar, which... Um, uh, Nectar, yeah. You know, they were based, they were living in Seaheim um, for mm-hmm. years, but they had been, uh, if you, the backstory on that is that they were um, three, three English musicians, one Scott and... Um, and their lighting guy, who was also British, and they had done the same um, gravitational drift into Germany. 
that the Beatles had done, except they mm. didn't go back triumphant to the UK. They married German girls. The crew was uh, a mix of Brits and and German, uh, West German citizens at the time. They signed to Bellaphone. Um, and so their label was German and they basically just stayed put. They never really went back and they were picked up um, for U.S. distribution through the Gem Group and, um, and it, almost out of the gate ended up having a gold record with back, uh, Remember the Future, which was not their mm -hmm. first album, but their first one in North America that made a splash. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, they were going to be touring. Well, they, they were going to be doing an album right after I finished the first Synergy album. And it was just on the cusp of release. So I did the promotion on that. And we had gotten to know each other a little bit. Well, remember the future was out and they were touring and they invited me to come work on their sessions with them to add an electronic overlay, um, which was great. So we worked at Chateau de Araville, which was, um, you know, supposed to be this big famous French studio. And it was, it was a picturesque piece of architecture with absolutely horrible recording technology <laughs> uh, only because nothing worked, nothing was maintained or, 24 mm -hmm. track machine was always breaking down so we we actually couldn't continue there with such an untenable situation so their management and label moved everything to air studios in london at oxford circus which at that point under um you know still under the direction of uh george martin um and jeff emmerich was a staff engineer it was a lot of the beatles people so i was thrilled and mm -hmm. uh we finished the album up there. I think uh, David Gilmore was in a different room there working on his solo album. It was a really fertile time and a lot of things got done. But I had done so much with the album that when they came to tour it, they said, um, can you come on the road and recreate some of that stuff? So I did. And it was my first time touring. Uh, I'd never done the club thing. I mean, very early on in high school as a rank you know, amateur, mm -hmm. not in the business at all. But I had skipped that whole working your way up through the clubs and paying your dues thing. So I, my first show with them was an arena show at a university in Illinois, you know, big, uh, stadium, you know, stadium gymnasium kind of thing. And that was, we did that. We toured the U S and Canada over that, um, next period of time touring that album spring, I guess, winter, spring into summer of 76. And then by then I knew I was going to be working with Peter on his solo album, but I didn't know what the long-term thing was. I knew I'd be on the album. Didn't know that mm -hmm. he was going to ask to tour. And I didn't know I'd be invited back for a second album or if there would be a second album. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll rejoin Genesis for all we know. We, you know, we just don't know. So, um, you know, leaving all the options open, but then the Peter thing did happen and it toured and, Nectar had moved to the United States. They decided to relocate after they had sort of played out Europe as much as they could. And they thought America's the next big market. So they moved here, but it didn't work out well. The singer, songwriter, guitarist who was at the core of the band didn't take to America. And he, he left and moved back. And, you know, it just sort of devolved. That they've kept it going um, with replacement people. And it's they're still touring. They're still doing, they're still mm -hmm. getting. Some of them are mm -hmm. nearing 80 years old, but they're still doing it. And, uh, you know, more power to them. But 
with Peter, it was very attractive. Um, his management and team was really determined to see it as success. And when the tour happened, I did that one, and then the next album, and then the next tour. And, you know, it, it got down to the the core band, um, which um, you know, with Peter, but Tony and Jerry, Murata and myself, and then a few different changes of guitarist till David Rhodes became the guy and he's mm -hmm. still there and it was almost 10 years worth of that that core work with peter incredible so, incredible and how, how did you how, how did you or how do you like being on the road do you do you have any uh, i was it was it was it attractive or for you or yeah for a while very attractive i used to like it a lot i think it's because there wasn't that much at home And, um, and when you're in your twenties, I found it really exciting. And, you know, there were times when it was the grind of the airport. I, I don't have to tell you the amount of, <laughs> um, what I was starting to find, because I remember I was still signed. I still had solo albums that were due and I was getting further and behind that. Uh, the label was very good with me and allowing me a lot of leeway. So I was supposed to deliver one album a year. That was not happening if I was doing Peter and then touring and then, mm -hmm trying to get something in um so a five-year contract stretched out to be like 11 by the time mm -hmm. without any punitive stuff but it, it just kept going and um i was itching you know i was i i i like being on the road but i also liked the access to bell labs and that of course that was going to be changing soon when the telephone company was broken up by the courts so you know there were a lot of different things going on but there were things that i wanted to do and i had other projects remember peter early on was something i found enormously creative i like him i liked him i still like him um i think he's one of the most talented people i've ever had an opportunity to to work with creatively but at the same time the records were not the platinum records that they would become later um after sledgehammer and mm -hmm. yeah. Um, other records that I had worked on, um, mostly within uh, Jim Steinman as a writer-producer, which started out with Meatloaf and his first two albums, but then a lot of other artists, uh, everything from the Everly Brothers to Air Supply to Barbara Streisand, um, but particularly Bonnie Tyler. Um, I had worked with Jim as either an informal associate producer and then later under contract as an associate producer on Bonnie Tyler. And we had done total eclipse of the heart in the middle of one of the Gabriel tours. And I, I'd have to look at the calendars to figure out exactly where that was, but it just exploded. Um, you know, huge amount of stuff, a huge amount of sales and the fallout on that. And, you know, thank goodness it was a union date. I still get residuals from it. Um, it was, a wonderful thing. And then I was asked to come on and be the associate producer on the follow-up album, but it would be a commitment of nearly a year for that. Peter wasn't doing anything. And then in the middle of that, he called me to say, I'm doing the new album that would, the one that would become so, and mm -hmm. I couldn't be in New York. You know, I, they paid me a lot of money up front and uh, it was way out of the league of where the Gabriel organization had been at that time. So I, I don't want it to sound like it's just a money thing, but it was, I had obligation and it was creative yeah, sure. and I was given a lot of, a lot of freedom and leeway on production on, on those recordings. And uh, you know, I, I, I just, that was sort of 
where it, it changed. And then Peter wanted to change the touring band. So I wasn't part of that anymore. And things just, you know, evolved in, in different ways. But uh, it also let me get back to my own recordings. So I had yeah. one big one that I spent uh, after Bonnie Tyler and after Peter was out on the road with So, I basically stayed at home and really did what I needed to do on electronic music recordings and dove back into that. I was I was getting a little bit pulled away by the rock and roll machine from what I felt were my my roots in that. And in the interim, I um, my me- sort of mentor in all of this, Wendy Carlos, who was the the person who had set the bar for what I felt a lot of electronic musicians should be doing. And we had mm-hmm. known each other casually. We got to be very close friends over that period in the early 1980s. And mm-hmm. she was working on some of her microtonal things. Um, she was wonderful. I was working on my album, Metropolitan Suite, and I was sharing as I was writing, and I, I've saved them to this day. She would call my answering machine and say, that that little phrase on this, it would, instead of da-da-da-da-da-da, wouldn't it be better as da-da-da-da-da? It was like, yeah, it would be. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so um, she was there. I've, got, I've actually got photos of her when we were doing the the LP mastering over at MasterDisc. She came on the sessions with me. So, you know, it was, it was really a creative time. And I will always, you know, appreciate it. I broke um off writing an email to her this morning so that we can do what we're doing right now which i'll pick up this afternoon wonderful yeah i mean like this by that time like in the like 80 86 or 87 you were already in the the business let's say almost almost 20 years like 18 17 years or something like that doing things right and and some sometimes I feel like if we're like once we get a little older, we kind of like see that there are these phases, right? Like things that sort of like these these uh, brackets somehow of activity, you know, and uh, and for me it's interesting also that in the you know, I was, you know, I became sort of like a conscious music listener at the age of like maybe 10, like in 82, 83, right? And I re- still remember, and even like if I go back now, it almost felt like as if every year had its own sound because there was sort of like some new technology coming out that was like, like I don't know, I remember like Quantic Room Simulator, yeah, like 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 these kinds of exactly. pieces of gear <laughs> that are you know uh, the Fairlight, uh, obviously, and you work with that, right? And yep. uh, and 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 all of these these things, and then sort of like in the in the middle of the eighties, like it 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 felt as if like like the business, I mean, or just the music sonically, had changed so much from the late seventies. Like striking to me, like looking back, how 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 big the difference in production and 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 uh, even like the 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 I guess the listeners' taste, how that has changed. You know, it's it's sort of incredible. There was a, a cultural change that was going. I mean, when I jumped in, uh, obviously the I was much younger, but of course, as a, as a fan listener, the Beatles ch- just shifted the world on its axis. And very rapidly, 
after that, as their evolution was so quick, the culture was, you know, they, in here in the States, the Kennedy assassination was this incredible dark cloud that happened at the end of November, around just around Thanksgiving holiday. And in early December was when I Want to Hold Your Hand was released and started, started up the charts on radio. So it was almost this release from this um, national PTSD. And mm-hmm. within um, the, the month of January, the Beatles started to take over, at least in youth culture, the us baby boomers, the post-war babies who were all coming of age. And it was this cultural shift that took place. And then Vietnam War starts to ramp up a year later. And the anti-war movement, all these things that, that the culture that those of us that were born after the war, World War II had ended, and this new normality, but this kind of banal middle America white bread normality, but it had been very stable for quite a long time. And from not that the Beatles caused it by themselves, but maybe they were even symptomatic of it, but everything started to change. The anti-war culture immediately morphed into music that just two, three years later after the Beatles pop stuff is becoming a serious cultural touchstone of the movement. And then, you know, not to go through the whole history with Woodstock and all that, but the culture itself just went through such huge changes. And as that was happening, the technology was happening too. So whether it was electronic music or computers or other. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing that you're pointing this out. I never had thought about that, but I remember like one of the first uh, listening experience I vividly remember is listening to the White Album. And I must have been three years old, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Right. Something like that. And the White Album wasn't even like was maybe seven years old then or um, I guess it was released six, six, 68 or yeah. Yeah. Right. So, remember, so, because I, I was just, that was the first one I could drive myself to buy because I was just old enough. <laughs> and and I, I remember when I was listening to that, and that I uh, don't get me wrong here, but it already sounded old to me. Yeah. I know. No, I know what you meant. They were starting to sound. I, I remember feeling that, oh, the Beatles are getting a little stodgy in, in a sense, you know, because the, the West Coast, you know, bands that I liked, like Jefferson Airplane and some of the others were just kind of pushing things a little further than they were. But I was beginning to, at the same time, I was beginning to feel very much like you were, that they were sounding old. I was also beginning to appreciate that they were part of the lexicon that writers like George Gershwin and Richard Rogers and, um, you know, the, the, the great standard songbook writers that Lennon McCartney probably belonged in that not mm-hmm. and and maybe they're allowed to sound a little old because in a sense they're part of an older tradition i don't know that white yeah, yeah exactly. fit in with a gershwin piece yeah but i i think what because for me there was this like you i first heard it five six years later yeah. after it was released right and to me it felt as if that Already the, it, at that point in 73, it was an old record. I don't know if it already felt old when it was released. Oh, it, it <laughs> felt old. Some of it felt old when I brought it home. And I started, uh, oh, okay, wow. I, I was sophisticated enough 
culturally, at least, even though I didn't grow up in the UK, to understand some of the music hall references, the, um, that there was a, tr a pub tradition that was beginning to emerge in some of the writing, you know, like Honey Pie or some of those kinds of, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, it was a, a different thing. It wasn't quite an American thing either, but you could see it was from an older generation. Um, mm -hmm. But no, it felt it where something like Rubber Soul was uh, avant-garde or revolver when I brought it home and put it on the turntable. Um, White Album, not quite so much. And then mm -hmm. um, Abbey Road was a mix. You know, there were some parts of it that, okay, Maxwell Silverhammer feels old or Oh Darling feels old. But then other things, particularly, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but um, She's So Heavy or something like that. Oh, it's mm -hmm. the Moog. Or Here Comes the Sun. It's the Moog synthesizer in there that mm -hmm. I, I, I knew what it was, but I didn't quite figure the context for myself mm -hmm. until looking back on it. So, um, I mean, it's, we're already talking for <laughs> an hour and yeah, an hour and a half, but that's, that's, that's fine. So, so what, what, what really kind of tell me what, what happened in the eighties, like, like technologically and, and also how, how did production techniques change? Why did we get such a different sound in just about like five, six years? Oh, well, I think, um, one of the things that had happened was the, um, uh, Use for me. Well, I'm going to do it from my perspective, but I think it's sure. What um, the uh, one of the challenges of touring early on with Nectar and and with Peter for the early years was um, the lack of memory recall on the modular Moogs or even the mini Moogs and stuff. Everything you know, I'd have a headphone. I'd be trying to dial up sounds and hope that I was hitting them close for the next section of the song. Um, and one of the things I really wanted was uh, some way of memorizing what it was. Moog had a project already going um, that was already called a memory Moog, but it was really a, a like a mini Moog, but it had computer storage of the patches. And mm -hmm. it was shelved in favor of the poly Moog, which was a big polyphonic instrument. It was a they had been, had a change in administration, and um, I wasn't in complete agreement with that, even though I was helped with the promotion. But out on the West Coast, Dave Smith and Sequential Circuits picked up the same concept, and they ran with it, and they came out with the Prophet 5. So they had 40 memory slots. They could recall everything, um, you know, any patch, and um, got that for Peter's 1978, the, the latter half of 78 tour. And it was a very early one. We uh, picked up, I think, serial number 48 or something. And uh, and I immediately put in an order for myself. And um, so we had the two of them on the road uh, within months. And that meant that the sounds were great. But the thing that um, went out, I guess, when we were doing that tour and went out to the factory in uh, Silicon Valley, met with Dave Smith and the people that had developed it. And they said, you know, we, they come back to the factory. You know, what's blown us away is we preloaded it with 40 presets that we thought would be kind of universal sounds. And so many of them are coming back with no changes. Nobody changes the presets. Mm -hmm. And you started hearing those same sounds on uh, a lot of records. And for mm -hmm. me, it wasn't at all. What I was doing was I was taking the, you know, my patched modular sounds and building a, a set for Peter's show 
that was based on the sounds that I had uh, cobbled together individually on recording days. And now I could take them out on the road. So I, for me, it was perfect, but no, there was almost nothing of the presets left. And I was, and some of them were good and I hated to wipe them out, but you know, that was, mm-hmm. that was that. it wasn't that complex an instrument. You could always repatch. So um, I could see that was happening. And then, you know, there was competition, Yamaha and Roland and others are starting to come out with equivalent kind of instruments. And it, um, I was then contacted by Moog when they reactivated the memory Moog project to create their six voice version of the Prophet five um, called the memory Moog. And would I contribute patches to it? And I did about a third of the factory set, um, which was not an easy thing to do. It's easier to write melodies for me than to sit there in a stark room, soundproof room and come up with Mm -hmm. an interesting sound. And I was also sort of instructed by the marketing staff. It's got to be really impressive in the music store. Cause I was kept saying, well, this is really big and fat, but this is totally unusable as a production piece for a recording. And they go, doesn't matter. We're selling synthesizers. We're not making records. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, I caught on, I knew what they were getting at, but that was, that was hard, but the factory sounds became the thing. And eventually they even dropped programming or what the DX7, which, uh, you know, hit in 83, 84, it was so complex to program. It it had enormous capabilities, but through that little tiny LCD window and without any, you know, good, meaningful computers to plug it into, it was an impossibility. So nobody was changing the presets. You know, they were, Mm -hmm. they just became what they were. And that meant that the, you know, the bell sound Rhodes piano and certain sounds, you know, they were just everywhere. And I think that affected record production. You know, there was very little of going back to the modular. People didn't want to spend the time to do it. Um, I was, I was lucky on some of the records that I worked on. Uh, I'm thinking in particular foreigner, because I've worked on two of their albums on foreigner for an agent provocateur. And a lot of the tracks on on those were based on pulsing modular sounds. You know, that was it was sort of old school already by the early '80s. But mm-hmm. um, they they were fine with it. But I think they were successful enough that they weren't worried about the studio clock ticking or anything. Others were going, well, just just hit the buttons, find me a sound, and a producer or an artist would go, yeah, that's good. Okay, let's make that the sound. I go, well, we can make we can change it. No, 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 no. That's good enough. That's fine. We we got to be out of here at five o'clock, and uh, that's interesting. So, that's what so it's the it's it's the re- the the capability of recall. Let's say that that drove that changed more than the actual sounds themselves. Yes, it became what was what happened at Nam became important. What was heard on the floor at Nam became what was on the records in the next months. And that's where mm-hmm. the chase was. But the original, everything we talked about an hour ago, you know, mm-hmm. what was going on in, with Stockhausen or Pierre Schaefer or the, you know, the, this long history of crafting sounds by other means than traditional instruments was mm-hmm. just being left in the dust. And uh, I don't like that. <laughs> you know, it's still oh, <laughs> <laughs> Even today, I'm, it's funny because I mean I'll, I'll use I use most almost everything's in software, but um, 
uh, you know, with spectrosonics instruments like, um, you know, Omnisphere is one of my go-tos. And mm -hmm. I'll talk with other users and they'll go, well, which library are you using? It's like, I don't. I just start with a four oscillator clean slate the way I used to have patch cords draped around my neck and Moog module in front of me and start patching. And I'll, I'll build from wave, scratch on waveform because to be honest, I can't be bothered to go through that much library stuff. If I've got a sound in my head, I, I can make it quicker than I can find it. Yeah, and, and that also means there's always going to be some variation and there's something special about it. And it, as you say, it's not meant to work as sort of like a stand, standalone, standalone soundscape, but as a musical instrument or a part in a, in a musical piece, right? Yeah, I, I, f I find, yeah. I tend to build it out of a lot of little pieces. That was, you know, some of what Wendy Carlos had, had shown the world in electronic music early on that Hockatine and other uh, older techniques used with, um, you know, very sounds that had not really been heard or used before, even as applied to classical writing, could be very valuable. And um, I tried to apply some of those, but they, they were done on the modular. I know when one of the uh, things on Games Without Frontiers is all made up of lots of little little pieces, lots of little individual mm -hmm. patches through some of it with the Moog, a little bit with some of the other instruments, but um, they're all glued together into what became the sound. You couldn't really get a Prophet 5 or a Juno something or even anything much later, you know, Kurzweil, and just have the 10 fingers on the keys and make that work. It just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. it's a big organ sometimes yeah. that's appropriate but it's not it's not going to i i like breaking it down into the you know the little fractals that are going to put that you're going to reconstruct to make a sound a bigger sound yeah and, and for me also the um layering techniques you know just just like what you would do when you're orchestrating for an orchestra exactly right like the, those, the, the idea to, to have layers that you can then, glue, like you said, like glue together somehow to become one sound. Yes. Um, um, that, that is, that's just a wonderful thing to do. And like I have one, um, started one musical project last year where I was purely only using synthesizers, right? Uh, and plugins actually. And the idea was to only use like the, the factory presets. That was the original idea. Okay, but what I ended up doing is like layering like eight different synth sounds to make one new sound, you know. But but I think it's it's that it's that sort of like creativity to find a new texture or like a new interaction of elements, really that that is fascinating to us, I guess, as people who are like deeply interested in in creating sound worlds. I I think you're you're absolutely right. I think part of it is the arranger's mind. And how can you keep the sounds from stepping on each other? Because if you just layer um, a lot of things, you just end up with a big mud puddle and nothing is clear. And then you're taking up too much sonic space. And if it is in a more rock oriented thing, you're, you're stepping on the drums, you're stepping on the bass. Um, so I'd rather deconstruct it down to the component parts and then put it back together using only what's necessary. And I'm yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. <laughs> I don't know to that, but, you know, but the layering is good. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong, especially if you're creating an interesting texture yeah. out of that. But if yeah. that whole 
module needs to stay out of the way of the other parts. Oh, I'm, I'm very much a, a rebel when it comes to layering, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I hear you just like, as you said, like uh, an hour and a half ago, like three oscillators are enough. You don't need six, like everything that's going to, it's just going to be more wishy-washy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and <laughs> I remember having a talk with Roger Powell, um, and, um, you know, who I'd known at Bell Labs and stuff. We were talking, I don't know if it was at a Todd Rundgren show or something, maybe a Bowie show. Because uh, uh, actually, when I was working with Peter, Bowie had asked me to do one of the tours and I stayed loyal to Peter, but I recommended Roger for it. And he, he took the, the gig on that. Mm -hmm. But whatever it was, we were talking about how everything was getting too overly complex at the expense of the music. And in production, we could take a Micromoog, which was a one oscillator, you know, really the lowest end of the Moog instruments then with a three octave keyboard, but it had a nice filter. It had a few things. Give me a Micromoog, a good digital reverb, early digital reverb, like a lexicon, and then an uh, eventide harmonizer. And you could do just about anything. And uh, that would be enough. That's all you'd need to take on overdub sessions. Uh, given enough freedom and and enough track space, you could create it. Yes, yes. You know, like I've I've been doing this ambient looping with my guitar, and the way that I do that is I I'm using a, a feed, little feedback system, right, where I have two loopers that do feed each other, and and so um, over over the years I started doing that like like almost thirty years ago, but. Um, Ever since that, I can I can do that in the computer, like about starting about in two thousand five. What uh, what I realized was because it is a feedback system, adding another looper doesn't make any difference. Yeah, like 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 if you have two elements interacting in a fractal way, yeah, like with recursion, like there you can add more elements, but it doesn't make it more complex and doesn't make it more interesting. They just kind of drift into the background. And uh, no, I know exactly what you mean. There's an album that I did, um, which was uh, in 1980. And it's really interesting because the titles of the tracks are artificial intelligence on, with different dates. Um, but it was a, um, a, a sort of semi-auto-composing piece of software that a friend of mine who had founded his own small synthesizer company, Paya, had developed. And I had um, hacked into my first profit to get straight into the digital inputs that control the oscillators from the computer, which was another one of these um, uh, MOS 6500 family computers, similar to the, to the Apples at the time. And um, I, it wasn't interesting enough just with that. So I did looping, but it was all done digitally, not with multiple Studer machines like I had done earlier it was uh, uh, Delta Lab, which had a very good digital delay system that you could buy a module with just a ton of memory. And it would mm -hmm. do these incredibly long loops. And on each iteration coming back, it, it, it actually had built into the, the hardware filtering and ways to actually do some pitch modulations. So it was really interesting. So I let the it was fairly simple computer running the software software was running a list of notes. I had said, you're allowed to use. And then there was a blacklisted set of notes you can't use, 
but you can put them together anyway. And sometimes they're going to be harmonic and sometimes anharmonic, but at mm-hmm. least I was restricting its world. Let it mm-hmm. run, controlled the profit, picked the patches on that, and then went through this looping system and just went straight into the MCI. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, like you said, I tried adding more, uh, running another loop on the loop and stuff. And it, it just didn't make any, I actually pulled back on some of the length of some of the loops just because they, one on its own was complex, but it didn't make any sense in the long run. And this was a yes. long time ago, 40, and, a little over 40 years ago. And I just digitized and, the master on that. So I'm hoping to do good. our next subject, which is surround mixing. Yes, yes, yes. But we won't we won't talk about that publicly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you've been doing it, and I've been doing it. My first album was um, done in quad, and I have the digital masters of that. It was distributed on, uh, uh, well, it was a variation on eight-track cassette, uh, eight-track cartridge. Um, mm-hmm. Q16, and I don't know if there were any players. I have one that I bought on eBay, but it doesn't work. And uh, it was yeah, it's so it's on the tail end of it. You're back. I got to find you here. Yeah, okay. I don't. I don't. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, you, you froze up, but I could see the recording was still going and the messages were still going, so that I was still plugged into Zoom. Okay, good. So that means I'll have to edit this video a little bit, which is <laughs> <just> fine. <laughs> That's okay. You know what? I, I need like um, two minutes break. <laughs> yeah, we, we, you, you know, you know um, if, you, if you don't mind, let's just um, say goodbye now and we'll, we'll meet again to talk about the surround and okay. spatial stuff. Okay. Um, and and, and okay. Hey, thank you so much, Larry. Bye Wonderful. bye for now. Bye for now. Enjoy bye. your dinner. Bye. bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.